Hello, and welcome to Acton Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. If you've been tuning in since we began this podcast in 2008, or if you're a newer listener, you'll know that up until now, this podcast has gone by a different name, Radio Free Acton. But this podcast isn't quite the same when we began 10 years ago now. Since about 2017, we began releasing episodes more regularly, every Wednesday, as well as featuring more guests in varied segments. Our name, a play off the Radio Free Europe of the Cold War era, served us well for many years. But given the rapid pace of change in technology and podcasting, we thought it was time for a refresh, more in keeping with today's audience. We are pleased to introduce our podcast's new name, Act In Line. Act In Line rolls off the tongue a bit easier, and we wanted this podcast to be a primary source or your line of communication where you can find conversations that bridge good intentions with sound economics, and we're excited for you to join us. You'll also notice that we have a new podcast cover. We wanted our cover to be bright and stand out on your phone or laptop, and we have David Fassett, the art director for InterVarsity Press in Chicago, to thank for the beautiful graphics. Now for a quick rundown of this show. On the first segment, Reverend Ben Johnson, senior editor at Acton, sits down with Reverend Richard Turnbull from the Center for Enterprise, Markets, and Ethics to talk about the importance of voluntary privatized institutions, drawing examples from the UK to show how things go wrong when the government steps in to replace the church. After that, occasional host Bruce Walker speaks with Emily Jashinsky, culture editor at The Federalist, to talk about how movies in the US are being increasingly funded by China and as a result, facing significant censorship. As always, to check out any resources or articles mentioned in this episode, you'll find them all linked in our show notes, posted every Wednesday at blog.acton.org. Did you know that at one time the United Kingdom had a flourishing private school system? You wouldn't know it from the landscape today any more than you would know that from the United States, and yet that was the situation. How did we go from that situation to the way we are today? Here to discuss that with me is Reverend Richard Turnbull of the Center for Enterprise, Markets, and Ethics. You can see their website at thecemeorg In addition to his role at CEME, he's also ordained in the Church of England. He was here at the Acton Institute uh, recently for an event dealing with Abraham Kuyper. Reverend Turnbull, welcome to the Acton Institute. Thank you very much. What was the situation beginning before compulsory education when schools were run by private institutions such as churches? Well, the key date you need to bear in mind is 1870, which is, what, 100 and 150 years ago. And it's a very important date, it's a landmark date, uh, and it has very significant implications uh, for the role of the state in education and actually for the role of the state in many other aspects and spheres uh, of life. But let me just take you back a little bit before 1870 and ask the question, well, uh, what was the schooling uh, provision at that time? And generally speaking, uh, schools were provided by voluntary societies. And they were independent, they were private, uh, they were voluntary, they were local, established in a local area. And very often, actually, they would draw upon the poorest uh, in society. Uh, some, obviously, would uh, provide for wider than that. But the churches in particular sought to establish free independent schools that provided uh, for the poor. What were the churches trying to do with that provision? Well, uh, firstly, they wanted children to be able to read and to write. 
secondly, they wanted to enable those children to have some form of spiritual uh, education. Uh, and thirdly, because very often it was the poorest in society who were drawn in to these schools by the churches, uh, they uh, would feed uh, and sometimes even house uh, the children uh, concerned. So it was an integrated approach of a local school, a voluntary school. Uh, very rarely were the staff of the school paid. Usually they were volunteers. A lot were women. A lot were evangelical uh, uh, men and women, uh, but women in particular, are staffing these schools, uh, teaching uh, the children how to read and write, bringing spiritual insight and providing for their social needs uh, as well. So if we look at that pivotal year, 1870, what changed in that year? So 1870 was the year uh, when the government of the day introduced what became compulsory state education. And it established the equivalent of school boards uh, around the country. And those school boards were required to provide for education for everybody under, uh, their, uh, ov- under their oversight. Uh, now, the consequence of that was a rapid decline in the number of these voluntary schools. So I think you can probably see what's happening in, in that is the power of the state begins to increase. State provision of schooling becomes not just legally required, but increasingly, therefore, the norm. Uh, the power of the state in terms of money and finance is backing this movement. And so these voluntary schools, which, of course, were not perfect, but these voluntary schools rapidly declined in the decade from the uh, 1870s onwards. And that had much wider implications for society just uh, than education, because these schools were one example of the whole plethora of voluntary associations, voluntary societies, often uh, organised and shaped and run by Christian people, um, evangelicals, uh, Anglicans, uh, Roman Catholics as well, uh, uh, and had a significant impact on society. And the schooling shift meant that there was a shift in all of these voluntary organisations which began to decline. Uh, your listeners may not know, but in the decades leading up to 1870, it has been shown by scholarly research that up to three quarters of voluntary societies were run by evangelical uh, Christians. They would be schools, which we've been talking about. They would be savings banks, clothing banks, even some microfinance initiatives to enable uh, people to buy capital equipment so that they could uh, operate their own businesses. All of that got swept away in the aftermath of one act, an education act, yes, which was aimed at schools, but it had an impact much, much wider just than education, because it meant the power of the state was growing and these voluntary organisations were being uh, swept aside. So as this process was unfolding, what did the church have to say as the state began to encroach upon areas in which it had formerly made provision? Yes, well, uh, the state, uh, the church, sorry, uh, the the church largely acquiesced in what took place. Uh, There did remain some schools under the control of the institutional church, and uh, they continued over a, a fairly long period of time and in some form still exist today, but same curriculum, same levels of control uh, uh, exercised by by the state. Um, the people who opposed the uh, move were largely independent Christian lay leaders, 
um, and senior figures in the political world rather than the church. So just just so our yeah. listeners understand, when you say independent Christian, you mean outside of the established Church of England? Uh, not necessarily outside of the established Church of England. I mean, I'll give you an example of the leading opponent of the 1870 Act was a man, again, your listeners may not have heard very much of him, but a man called the Earl of Shaftesbury. And uh, he described the 1870 Act as the advent of a godless system. That was the word that he used. He was an Anglican. He was a member of the Church of England. In 1870, he'd been in Parliament for 45 years and had another 15 years to go. If you're wondering why you've never heard of him, simplest way of looking at it is like this. Most people have heard of William Wilberforce. Uh, when William Wilberforce left Parliament, the Earl of Shaftesbury entered Parliament, 1825. Uh, and I suppose, therefore, you could see him as Wilberforce's successor. Uh, and there were two things that drove this man. Uh, firstly, was, yes, to protect the vulnerable. And um, he did that sometimes through the action of legislation and, and government. But secondly, he had this passion for the voluntary society. And his argument, I'll just very briefly share it with you, his argument was local uh, that, that voluntary societies are firstly local, therefore they understand the context. And secondly, they can be Christian uh, because they are voluntary uh, societies. And thirdly, they can meet people's both spiritual and social and to some degree economic needs because they are independent uh, from the state. I, I think that's a, a pretty good vision. And Shaftesbury had enough foresight to see that the 1870 Education Act, you know, which no doubt brought some good things perhaps, but that the 1870 Education Act was like a juggernaut uh, and uh, went through the, destroyed really, these uh, voluntary societies. So how has his prophecy, if we want to say that word, been fulfilled in terms of secular education in the UK? It's been fulfilled, by and large, by the churches outsourcing their own responsibility to the state. And they've done it with education. Uh, they've done it with uh, welfare. Uh, they've done it in many of the areas where the church was previously a key provider of social provision and spiritual provision. And now the churches have largely uh, outsourced that to the state. And uh, sadly, also, a lot of British Christians think that well, by paying our taxes, we also outsource our responsibility to the state. So I would prefer a system where we had fewer taxes, lower taxes, but we took back some of our responsibilities for caring for our families, caring for our neighbours, and working with our churches in both spiritual and, and social need. And it's interesting that uh, the Earl of Shaftesbury had those twin emphases. Apparently, he didn't see any disharmony between the idea of caring for the poor and voluntary associations springing up to do that outside of the framework of the state. Absolutely. And that really, you put your finger right at the heart of his vision. Uh, that is precisely how uh, Shaftesbury uh, looked at it. He, he, he thought that uh, there was indeed nothing incompatible between uh, providing for social need through these voluntary associations uh, and a Christian witness to the to the nation, and he 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 and others uh, around him uh, were were passionate in that advocacy uh, for this idea of a lively organic society where people cared uh, for their neighbours, they cared for their churches, they cared for the life of society, and they didn't just outsource it all uh, through taxation uh, to the to the to the monolithic uh, state. 
Do you believe that there's any road back to uh, that sort of a situation where you have what Edmund Burke would have called the little platoons that we belong to? Is there such a, a way, obviously you wouldn't want to undo necessarily compulsory education, no one sees that uh, on the horizon, but is there a way that the church would begin to fulfill its responsibilities through its own means and through its own organizations once again? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Uh, and and I think, um, if I may respond to it in this way, um, you see, one of the underlying assumptions behind the growth of the power of the state in whether it's education or whether it's welfare is the assumption that the state never fails. But actually, the state fails. And if you can have market failure, and you can have market failure, you can also have government failure. And what we are finding with our welfare system is that the system is failing to provide for the people in need that it claims to be providing for. Uh, what, how and why does it fail? Because it's one big centralised monolithic system that cannot cope with the need to uh, make this welfare provision in every locality, in every setting. And how, do you, how does a government assess people's needs in a particular locality? Consequent of that is it's falling apart in certain places and actually the little platoons are beginning to have to step up. Now at the moment there's still a lot of criticism of that because it said oh you're, you're just sort of filling in the gaps that the government should be doing. But it's an illustration that actually uh, Christian leaders in particular in the UK actually have come to place more faith in government than they do sometimes in God and maybe that's what needs to change. Well, perhaps government incompetence will force the Christian church to step up and fulfill its obligations once again. Quite. What are you doing intellectually to prepare them to know what their obligations are and to serve that role in the case of government failure at uh, CEME? Sure. Uh, so uh, one of my own areas of uh, academic uh, expertise is the 19th century uh, situation, particularly in the United Kingdom. Uh, and uh, let me just give you one example. Uh, uh, one of the... Uh, uh, one of the voluntary associations that emerged at that time uh, was uh, called the Emily Loan, the Emily Loan Fund. Um, it was called the Emily Loan Fund because Lord Shaftesbury's wife was called Emily. Uh, she died uh, uh, relatively young, and he named this fund after her. Uh, and so, philanthropic money put up capital, but the purpose of this fund was to make small, short-term business loans. Uh, to people running businesses who, uh, for example, they might be selling flowers in on the street in winter, uh, sorry, sorry, in summer, but they didn't have the means to carry that on in winter because of the changing seasons. And so the Emily Loan Fund would loan them money so they could buy an oven and therefore sell baked potatoes. Uh, and they would make a repayment of a pound a week, uh, uh, 10 shillings a week. I'm not sure what the level of repayment was, but a level of repayment so that over a period of perhaps one to two years, they would then own that oven. Now, uh, why do I tell you that story? Because when I tell that story to people in England today, concerned about the role of the church in relieving poverty and relieving social need, their eyes open wide when they realise that things like microcredit and microfinance are not new that things like microfinance and microcredit have been part of the DNA of the church in responding to social need for a very long time. And hey, guess what? That's not just handing things out, it's actually the market providing for social need. 
And so one of the things we do is make that story known and make similar stories known so that people can be inspired uh, to set up social enterprises, to set up uh, uh, organisations for social need that are run as, as commercial organisations and get a return to the people who put the money up, but they seek to achieve social need. Um, and we need to change a mindset. Uh, and we try to draw that picture just to encourage that change of mindset. If you want to change your mind or help others change theirs, you can see his writings along with those of many other intellectuals at the Center for Enterprise, Markets and Ethics. Their website is thecme.org. Reverend Richard Turnbull, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Join us in Grand Rapids to explore theology, philosophy, business, development, and market-based economics at the most unique conference in the Liberty Movement. During Acton University, the annual four-day conference of the Acton Institute, you'll get to choose from over 100 courses and over 60 speakers and connect with more than 1,000 people from all over the world. Come build the foundations of freedom with us and apply today at university.acton.org. That's university.acton.org. Hello, I'm Bruce Edward Walker, and today I am going to talk with Emily Jashinsky, who is the cultural editor of The Federalist. And we're going to talk a little bit of a matter of concern with Chinese funding of American films. And Emily wrote a very nice piece in The Federalist on this regarding the latest docudrama on Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the basis of sex. Hello, Emily. How are you today? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you. So um, briefly, tell us a little bit about your article, if you could give us a, a synopsis of this and why we would be concerned about this. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I got a press release for the new Ruth Bader Ginsburg biopic. It's called On the Basis of Sex. And as I was scrolling down uh, somewhere near the bottom of it, I saw that it was being funded by Alibaba Pictures, which is uh, obviously part of the major Chinese company, Alibaba. And that just struck me as a little bit odd because On the Basis of Sex is, a, is an explicitly political movie. It really does laud Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, so that's not to say it's necessarily a partisan movie, but it's definitely an ideological movie. And uh, Chinese funding of, of major Hollywood films is increasingly common. I think a lot of people would be surprised to learn exactly how common it is. I started the piece with a quote from Ronan Farrow, who did a report on this for NBC News. He said, if you go to a movie theater right now, it's a pretty decent chance you're going to be seeing a Hollywood movie with a budget partly from China. Um, and, and that's, you know, just two months ago, the New York Times says China has raised its influence in, in Hollywood by bankrolling a growing number of top tier films. They're, they go on to say China wields enormous influence over how it is depicted in the movies Americans make and watch. And that's where this is key. It's not just that there's funding coming from China. It's that studios are, um, we've seen in several movies, either not writing things into the script that would get cut by their Chinese backers um, or they're taking things out after their complaints. 
so are there problems. So when you combine that with the idea that we're now going to have Chinese funding for political films, that is obviously problematic. Now, I have no evidence that China exercised any control over the messaging in this film, and I doubt that that's the case. My article was simply to say, we got to maybe keep an eye on this, um, because when you mix the two, uh, we could start to see um, Hollywood doing some dubious stuff um, in their editing or in the films that they're producing. So I was just trying to put two and two together there. Well, I, I was just reading uh, an article on Ryan Reynolds and uh, the Deadpool 3 is in, they're starting to write that now. And he had just gotten back from China where he was basically sanitizing Deadpool 2 for the Chinese audience. Is, is that something along the lines of what you're talking about or uh, does it go yeah. even deeper than that? Yeah, it's 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 similar to that it, not even similar it, it is that's a that's a good case study and there's the one probably the most memorable case study is the 2012 remake of Red Dawn um, and so there was this leaked version of the script which got some pushback in China and why this made big news in the United States is because they actually uh, this is this is from the LA Times quote digitally erased Chinese flags and military symbols, substituting dialogue and altering the film and altered the film to depict much of the invading force as being from North Korea, an isolated country where American media companies have no dollars at stake. And so, from you know the research that I did into this when I was writing the article, there's some smaller tweaks too that are made in movies that aren't necessarily you wouldn't think of them as, as being harmful, um, just things that play better with Chinese audiences that American audiences might not even pick up on um, but when you start getting into this political stuff like with the red dawn remake um, or you know what we could potentially see in the future the more chinese money you have backing american films that are often political the more we can say hey we need to watch out for this because in america movies are really i mean the film industry is a really important way for us to have a lot of political conversations i mean some of the most important Films of you know certainly the past yeah you, know, you could you can go back in fact to the beginning of the film industry itself some of the most important films have been political um, and have made a, hit, a huge influence on our politics and so just obviously uh, want to be careful with who is influencing those messages. How does this compare to say the Hollywood Ten of the 1950s? It's <laughs> you you have to imagine what this is going to look like down the road. And I think that's a, an apt way to look at it, um, that you could be seeing censorship that we, American audiences reject and, and don't want to see in the industry. My concern would be that uh, as the Hollywood 10 are considered martyrs today, that there actually was communist material that was interjected into a lot of the film scripts of the era. Yeah, and when we're looking at like, See, I'll go back to the the Red Dawn example. I mean, it's Hollywood. I think that what what I want to watch out for is that Hollywood is getting a lot of money from China, and so what are they going to, you know, what are they going to promote? What are they willing to promote for the money that they're taking? Um, and that's not to suggest there needs to be government oversight, but there is an incentive, and we've seen them do it with like like with Red Dawn. We've seen them. You know, it's not as though it was Chinese propaganda. It was more a lack of, or it was caving to what China wanted for the film. So it wasn't 
a praise of China so much as it wasn't a criticism of China. And so we know that Hollywood is willing to do things to, to keep Chinese funding. So what down the road will they be willing to do? I think that's a very, very legitimate question, especially given that we have evidence that it's already happened. Right. You, you mentioned Red Dawn, but uh, there is also a Tibetan character in uh, Doctor Strange that was they, they changed the ethnicity of the character because there cannot be a depiction of a Tibetan character in a Chinese film. Yeah, there's been a scattering. Uh, the Tibetan question is interesting. There's been sort of a, a, a scattering of reporting um, over the past like 10-ish years, maybe more than that, every once in a while, whenever it crops up, about why certain actors um, aren't really as prominent as they might or as they should be or as you might ex- have expected them to be um, these days. And you can look at someone like Richard Gere, whose activism um, has probably upset or, or that you don't want to have uh, certain organizations or certain studios don't want to associate with Richard Gere for fear of losing funding or because they lose out on the Chinese market. Right. And that's and that's because Richard Gere was palling around with the Dalai Lama and has been an outspoken advocate for the Dalai Lama and the independence of Tibet. Right. Exactly. And so you can't really get away with a movie that's starring Richard Gere in China and American studios even um, sort of tailor their movies to Chinese audiences because it's obviously a huge, uh, a huge moneymaker to be able to have a successful film both in America and in China um, to to be able to do well with the Chinese audience. It's a obviously there's a huge incentive um, to figure out a way to do that. And so if you have Richard Gere in a movie, you're handicapping yourself right off the bat. Well, and we're, we're looking at the Chinese audience is as well, who are, they're only $2 billion behind the United States and what they spend on seeing films. They're, they're the second largest movie going public in the world. Yeah, and growing, um, growing a lot. And so you can see why, that, that's sort of why, when I was looking into this, um, and when we think about this particular case study, there's no evidence, and I doubt any exists, to show that Alibaba or the Chinese government exerted any undue influence over the political messaging of on the basis of sex. But it's more a question of what can happen down the line. And the, these early signs, these early indications, um, I don't think should, or, or I, I think they, they have me skeptical of what we're going to see five to 10 years from now, um, because there's so much money to be made in China and it's only going to continue. That market is only going to continue to grow. So the incentives are going to be bigger um, for Hollywood down the line. Well, one of the uh, articles that you allude to in your column in The Federalist is something that the Heritage Foundation put out that uh, featured Mike Gonzalez, who wrote that American audiences are being submitted to censorship, but not our own, but a foreign power censorship and a Communist Party censorship. But we get shown a very benign view of China in which China is a normal country. So essentially what what this whitewashing does is normalizes the behavior of the communist Chinese government. Yeah, or scrubs any, like going back to Red Dawn again, um, and, and the, if people are interested in this, I'm, I'm glad we're talking about the Heritage article or the Heritage, I think the transcript of a podcast that um, Mike Gonzalez did. It's, I highly recommend it. It's very informative, um, and you can find it on the Heritage website. He, he's, you know, been to China 
recently and you talked about his experiences there. Um, but if we go back to the Red Dawn example in particular, it is this normalization or this scrubbing. Um, so it's sort of like this it's censorship by way of just cutting bad things, you know, about having them as the enemy in this um, Red Dawn remake. It's not so much that they cut um, or, or that they inserted pro-China. It's the absence of what could be perceived as anti-China uh, material. And so in that way, it's, yeah, it's, it's the scrubbing and this normalizing. Um, and it's, it seems, you know, may, it may seem benign right now, but I'm not sure it'll always stay that way. Well, that was nine years ago. And since then, we've gone from post-production changes in films to pre-production where the writers are actually preempting themselves to put in pro-China or neutral China messages. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I think even makes this issue tougher is that they're self-censoring to avoid the problem in the first place. So where you have, like we just talked about, where films are important such an important aspect, I think, of political expression in this country. Um, you'll have studios self-censoring, um, so there there won't be any critiques for fear of losing out on this audience or for fear of losing out of this money in the first place. And that is troubling. And what's even more troubling, in my opinion, is that we really have no transparency on this. And again, that's not to suggest there should be government oversight. That's not to suggest any regulation or anything at all. It's just to say what makes this even more troubling is that we have absolutely no idea, um, unless there's leaks or unless you know someone comes out and talks about it, what's being scrubbed, what's being self-censored in, at all. Um, so we really have no idea what's going on. Right. But um, I, I think what, what you're getting at here is that the camel's nose is under the tent and it could become a much bigger issue going down the road. Yeah, absolutely. And, and without knowing the extent that this is the extent to which this is happening right now, we know some of it. We get some of it from leaks. Some of it you can see in movies. Some of it comes out um, over the course of the reporting on this, which I well, I hope we'll escalate. I hope we get more and more reporting on this. I hope we get more transparency and accountability for American studios um, just to at least know what's what's being cut, what's being added, what's being changed in the interest of, of ascertaining the funding or of appealing to Chinese audiences. Um, but right now, we really just we don't know. And so uh, this could be escalating quickly under our noses. Um, and in a few years, we could be in a very different place. And I think that, that may have happened since the Red Dawn remake. Um, it's, it's Again, it's hard to say, but there's certainly more since then, more Chinese money going into the American film industry, coming to uh, partnering, partnering with American studios. Um, and the Chinese audience, like we just talked about, is growing, growing, growing. So the incentives are, are going to be there in an even bigger way. Well, terrific. Do you have any uh, last thoughts on this, Emily? You know, I think I would just say, you know, reiterate what I, what I just mentioned, is that I really hope um, reporting on this continues because we don't necessarily need to be panicked right now, but it's just something I think for American audiences to be aware of. Um, and the more transparency and the more uh, the more knowledge we have of what's happening behind the scenes at these studios, the better off we'll be. Well, terrific. I'm talking to Emily Jashinsky, who is the culture editor for The Federalist, and she has written a wonderful piece that uh, we will have linked at the bottom of this on our website. So I, I hope you all check it out. And uh, Emily, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. 
Thank you for listening today. If you want to learn more about the Acton Institute and what we do, visit our website at acton.org. That's A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. Please do not forget to share this episode with any friends and family you think would enjoy listening. Word of mouth is usually the primary source of growth for any podcast. Lastly, we want to hear from you, whether it's constructive criticism, a suggestion for a specific guest or topic, or if you just want to let us know that you like this podcast, we would love to hear from you. Leave us a message at 888-705-4180 or shoot us an email at actonline at actin.org. This episode is produced by me, Caroline Roberts, with audio mixing by Nathan Moore.